because you're moving vertically up and down, uh, you get these big surges in blood to the brain, which is like fertilizer for your brain cells. For me, the two sort of, you know, main exercises uh, really are the squat and the push-up. And if you do those, then you're doing pretty well. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. If you're anything like me, you probably have your morning routine pretty well dialed in. And one thing I love to do is to take AG1 by Athletic Greens. It has specific ingredients to improve your gut health, support your immune system, and really cover all of your nutritional bases. And since taking it, what I've noticed is real improvements, not just in my digestion, but in my skin and my hair. So I'm so excited that Athletic Greens have decided to partner with the show. And if you want to take ownership of your health, today is a good time to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster and check it out. Hi friends, I have the perfect episode I think for you today, looking ahead towards the new year. If you're thinking about introducing healthy habits and how you can do things simply and easily and integrate them seamlessly into your life, then I think you'll really enjoy this episode with Dr. Michael Mosley. He's coming to talk about his new book, Just One Thing, which talks about all different kinds of biohacks that you can use to really upgrade your health, your performance and your longevity, including things like intelligent exercise. It's absolutely fascinating because I actually learned um, about how I always knew that um, exercise enhanced BDNF. But what I learned from Dr. Michael Mosley on this episode is that um, doing squats in particular is really, really helpful to your brain and BDNF, which is kind of like miracle grow for your brain uh, because of the increase in blood flow moving between up and down. Push-ups also good, but maybe not as good according to the research as squats. So you're going to find out a ton of things on this episode just like that. We also talk a little bit about wearables and whether they're accurate we didn't have time to dive into too much detail on that. So I'm going to be talking about wearables and things like Aura and Whoop straps and how what their accuracy is like for things like HRV and resting heart rate and calorie estimation in a bite-sized episode alongside kind of special considerations for those of you that are more active and athletic um, so that you can avoid things like low energy availability. So look out for a bite-sized podcast coming out soon in relation to that. Um, but today, as I say, we're going to be diving into all the latest science on how you can really upgrade your health, your performance, your longevity in very simple ways that fit seamlessly into your day. Uh, a few things you can add in as well to your morning routine, but don't take too much time. So Dr. Michael Mosley is the number one international best-selling author of The Fast Diet, The Eight-Week Blood Sugar Diet, The Clever Guts Diet, The Fast 800, Fast 800 Keto, and Fast Asleep, and including now the, the latest book, Just One Thing, which is a fantastic book. If you haven't read it yet, you can go and get that from all good bookstores and also on Amazon. You've probably seen, if you're in the UK, Dr. Michael Mosley on TV. Um, he trained to be a doctor at the Royal Free Hospital in London before joining the BBC, where he spent three decades as a science journalist and executive producer. And he's now a well-known TV personality. Uh, and he's really renowned for bringing together the latest scientific research and creating easy-to-follow, sustainable weight loss programs. He has some uh, very easy, as I say, hacks and, and little exercises and things that you can do today. So it's a very practical focused episode. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to Dr. Michael Mosley. 
So, Dr. Michael Mosley, I am so excited to have you on the show. I have a ton of questions for you. Uh, but firstly, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you. It's awesome to have you here. I think we were just chatting offline there about how important metabolism is for longevity, for performance, kind of brain and body. And I think that's probably the perfect place to start. Um, but I guess my, my first question would be, why do you think so many people are currently struggling with their metabolism? I think it is largely because um, we're eating so much junk food, processed food. And by that, I mean food, which is from takeaways, but also the bright colored, brightly packaged uh, pre-cooked meals that you buy in supermarkets and all those other things which are made in factories. And unfortunately, these sort of foods are quite alien to us in the sense that we did not evolve to eat things like that. And we also know that um, from quite a few studies that when people eat ultra processed food, they just eat a lot more of it. And that really messes with our metabolism as well as our waistline and our ability to metabolize sugar and things like that. So I think that's the major villain, if you like, is the rise and rise of ultra processed food. And we know in the UK around half of calories consumed are from ultra processed food. And with kids, it's up to 70%. So that is an astonishing uh, rise and really it's happened since the 60s and 70s and that's when we have seen the rise of obesity worldwide it took off in a spectacular fashion then and that mm. was largely thanks to ultra processed food it's spectacular that's a good way to describe it it's fast um i think one of the things that you know when i when i work with people is and i think this is just a part of life is many people who are listening to this actually they may not be very overweight but they're struggling with kind of losing seven pounds. It's what I call body recomposition, right? Where they're under-muscled and they have a little bit too much body fat. And I think that as we're aging, because we're fighting that um, kind of degradation in muscle mass, we actually do have to work at it on a consistent basis to maintain it. Um, I know that you have various different diet plans that people can follow with a lot of clinical research behind them. Um, and we were talking about your initial one that people can go on where they've dropped their calories down to about eight to 900 calories a day. But the way that's designed is not to kind of break their metabolism and lead to that rebound in weight gain. Can you describe for people listening how they might go about this and what's important when you're structuring a nutrition plan? Sure. So this is based on something, a book I wrote a couple of years ago called The Fast 800. And also there's an online program called thefast800.com. Uh, and uh, around 35,000 people have been through it so far. So we have a lot of data on them. We know kind of what's happened to them and we can keep track. And also because there are health coaches involved uh, when you do the program, we also get an enormous amount of feedback that way. And so this is a sort of three-stage program. So the first stage is rapid weight loss, if, it, if you're suitable. And obviously um, not everyone is suitable, but you can um, discover the criteria if you go to the website. And that's broadly 800 to 1,000 calories a day, every day uh, for up to 12 weeks. And it very much depends on your motivation and how much you have to lose and why you want to lose it. Uh, but if you are significantly overweight, if you uh, suffer from obesity, um, then this can be a very effective way of um, shedding those um, extra kilos. Um, it has to be done properly. You need to have good nutritional balance. You must have uh, high quality protein in your diet, because otherwise you will lose um, muscle. Indeed, that was a problem with all the early rapid weight loss diets um, is the protein content was low. And the crazy ones, like the cabbage soup diet, again, you're not going to get much protein mm. in cabbage soup. And it's becoming increasingly clear just how critical protein is. 
um, for our health. So that's kind of stage one. Stage two is what I described the 5-2 diet, which I'm famous for because I invented it 10 years ago. And the idea there is, yes, you cut down to 800 to 1,000 calories, but you only do it two days a week. So you're kind of graduating from very rapid weight loss to, you know, still substantial weight loss. And then stage three is what I would call um, the way of life, broadly a lowish carb Mediterranean style diet, which you can sustain, you know, from now on. And it also comes with an exercise regime and also um, ways to uh, manage your stress and mindfulness exercises and things like that. Because I think those are the sort of three things you've got to crack, basically healthy weight, mindfulness, stress management at least, which helps with sleep, obviously. And the third thing is exercise. Because you've got to exercise because you need to maintain your muscle mass. And you were saying, you know, it's scary how quickly people lose it. And mm. the stats suggest that after the age of 30, you're going to lose, uh, you know, up between up to 10% every decade, um, unless you do something about it. And that means resistance exercise over and above anything else, really. I mean, obviously, you need to do the aerobic, but resistance is a core part of our program. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, as, as well, actually, because I think a lot of people default to going out and just going for a run and they think that will help to burn fat and they underestimate just the impact that resistance training will have at rest, uh, but also in terms of improving things like insulin sensitivity um, as well. What do you have people do? How do you sort of divide that up? Is it a sort of two to three times a week initially resistance training? Um, it's obviously easier to get results, isn't it, in an unconditioned individual than it is in one someone who is already quite conditioned? Absolutely. So um, we have different levels, depending on you can enter your level, uh, depending on how fit or unfit you are at the moment. And uh, we have sort of, um, you know, trained exercise physiologists who will guide you through it. Uh, but it's essentially, as you say, three, maybe four times a week. Um, it is a form of HIIT, um, high intensity uh, resistance training. So you, uh, you know, do a combination of different forms, uh, where mainly using your body weight, but there's also stuff with weights. So you, for me, the two sort of, you know, main exercises uh, really are the squat and the push-up. And if you do those, then you're doing pretty well. And then there's lots of refinements beyond that, and planks, sideways planks, you name it, uh, you can throw it in. But I've um, just written a book called Just One Thing. And one of the things I write about there is the benefits of the um, press-up and the squat. Uh, not just for building muscle, but also because of the effect on the brain. So um, I uh, spoke to a researcher at the University of South Wales who's been looking into this, and he said that one of the advantages of the squat and the press-up is because you're moving vertically up and down, uh, you get these big surges in blood to the brain, and these trigger the release in the brain of a substance called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for your brain cells. So he came up with a phrase, basically calls them intelligent exercises because he's demonstrated cognitive improvement in people who do these particular exercises. And, uh, you know, compared to running or aerobic, uh, the benefits are much, much bigger. Um, certainly, you know, per minute done. But you can get these things over and done with in a surprisingly short amount of time. It's interesting. It's music to my ears because it means that all that glute training that I do in the gym is paying off, not just in terms of aesthetics, but in terms of my brain as well. Um, and actually, do you know, it's interesting because I think when I was looking into it as well, the research, like if you're listening to things and trying to learn as well, exercising at the same time. So I'll often listen to a podcast or read an audible book while I'm training in the gym. And I do find that I retain things better. I think my concentration's better. 
Um, so what you were saying there, does that apply to both the squat and the push-up? Yes, it does. Um, so because in both cases, you are going for a vertical motion, probably more, uh, you get more bang for your buck with the squat because the squat you'd move more. And um, another thing uh, I write about in the book is eccentric exercise, which you may be familiar with, concentric and eccentric. So there's been some fascinating research. This is the difference. So if you are lifting weights, then as you lift them up, that is the concentric with your tightening the muscles. As you lower them down, that's eccentric or eccentric. And surprisingly enough, um, there's some researchers in Australia who demonstrated that almost all the benefit comes from the going down. They did a study in which they got people either to do just lift the weights or just lower the weights or lift and lower. And it turned out that just lowering the weight was as effective as lifting and lowering. Um, so he said you get the same results with half the amount of effort. And he also did another study, which was very entertaining, where he got a group of overweight women uh, to uh, walk either up six flights of stairs or down six flights of stairs. And they had to take a lift the other way. And they did this three or four times a week for six weeks. And at the end of that time, the women who had been walking downstairs got the most benefit. They burnt more calories. They got bigger improvements in their bone density and bigger improvements in things like their cholesterol scores and fat scores. Uh, which That's is not what you would expect. No. You obviously, it's better if you go upstairs and downstairs. Uh, but downstairs seems to be even better than going upstairs. And that's what I love about science. You come across all sorts of weird stuff, uh, which yeah. surprises me. But so all the people a... that dodge the lift, then, well, they take the lift and dodge the stairs. Actually, yes. a really good place to start then is take the lift up and walk back down and out of the office. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that seems to be because, as he explained, um, when you exercise, as you know, uh, you do micro tears. Basically, you damage yourself and it's the repair uh, which happens in your off days that actually where, where the body builds back stronger. It responds to damage by going, okay, uh, I need to build back stronger. And when you're going downstairs, you're, and indeed when you're lowering the weights or indeed when you're going down on the squat, you are damaging your muscle more than when you're going up. And it also requires greater, in a way, effort to do it, to, mean, to make sure that you're not seriously damaging yourself. But it's those micro tears which seem to contribute to the fact that the metabolic rate is higher uh, and you burn more calories going downstairs than upstairs. Who Interesting. Knew? I suppose actually when you look at mountain biking, right, when you're going down, it is actually much harder to control than you're going up. Obviously it's effortful when you're going up, but people I think underestimate actually trying to hold the bike when you're going down a steep hill. Absolutely. And when you go up a mountain, you think it's knackering going up, but you find when you're going down, you kind of say, oh, well, the reason it's feeling tiring now must be because I've had to go up the mountain. And that's, I'm, you know, this is payback time. But actually, the reality is it's harder work going down mm -hmm. the mountain than going up. That's why you feel really knackered when you're on the way down. When you're going down. And it's good as well. Eccentric uh, movements are actually good for connective tissue, aren't they, as well? I think they supporting are. the joints. Huge benefits um, all around. Um, so, yeah, uh, at the very least, if you're going to uh, shun the lift, do walk down the stairs um, and you'll get benefit from that. I, I, I always want to shout at people on escalators because I see people standing on escalators going down. I think really this is, you know, this is the minimal amount of effort you could make. You could walk down a set of escalators. You know, but yeah. Sadly, yeah. our built environment is created in such a way as uh, to uh, encourage us to do as little as possible. And I think that's obviously a huge part of uh, the problem with the modern world is that yeah, we have made sure. it too easy. For sure. And actually that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, what we call NEAT, 
is responsible more when you look at it as a component of total calorie burn than people's exercise, isn't it? I think something like 20% is attributed to NEAT and 10% to exercise. Whereas most people are kind of laboring under the assumption that if they've got a scheduled a session at the gym, that's okay. Whereas actually it's the movement. I, I was reading an article recently that was talking about people doing calf raises or, or twitching their calf muscles at their, at their desk and just how much that was contributing to calorie burn. Absolutely. And all these bits um, help. Um, a few years ago, I did a film for Horizon called The Truth About Exercise, in which I discovered the joys of high intensity interval training and um, the amount of benefit you get from very short periods of time. But as part of that, I also uh, joined an American professor. Um, he gave me a thing he called his um, neat pants. And they were basically a pair of pants that kind of measured all the movements you did during the day. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it turned out that I wasn't big enough. And he met, he basically was estimating how many calories I burned uh, and it was clear I was sitting around far too much so yeah was, um, that was very entertaining more. yeah yeah very entertaining I was actually looking at one of your articles uh, uh before the show and it was around you doing hit training and looking at the improvements that you saw through hit training in terms of insulin sensitivity but you didn't see the same improvements as they were expecting in terms of vo2 max and they yes. put that down to genetics. Can you explain a bit about that? Because it was very interesting. Sure, because as I'm sure you know, uh, VO2 max is an incredibly important um, measure of your health. Indeed, Professor Jamie Timmons, who I was having this sort of, he was guiding me through this exercise program. He said the two greatest predictors of life expectancy are probably your insulin sensitivity that's incredibly important. And the other one is your, um, your, you know, your, your VO2 max. You're basically, you, how much oxygen can you, the maximum amount of oxygen you can burn when you're really pushing yourself. So the best way of doing it is going to a lab. They put an oxygen mask, they put a mask onto you and they measure how much oxygen you're breathing in and out as you push yourself to the absolute limit on a bike. But uh, most of us can't do that. There are online, you know, calculators. Or well, the simplest thing is to measure your pulse because your pulse is actually, again, not a bad measure of your aerobic fitness, which is what this thing is measuring. And so um, I did this HIT program, and it did great things for my insulin sensitivity, but not so much for my VO2 max. My VO2 max was okay for someone my age. Um, I'm now 65. I think I was 55 when I made that film. But he had taken, Jamie had taken a blood sample before I started the whole thing. And uh, he said, uh, when I came back and we remeasured everything, and I said, wow, I'm a bit disappointed it didn't get better. He said, we've measured your particular genetic marker. And we predicted on the basis of that, that you would get almost zero benefit in terms of your VO2 max. You might stop it getting worse, but it's very unlikely uh, you'll ever be able to boost it that much because he said you were right down there at the bottom score. So he said, yeah, on the other hand, um, I have the markers of someone who puts on muscle very quickly if I weight train. So there are swings and roundabouts uh, that our genetics to some extent will determine our uh, body shape, but also which sports we're going to excel in. I'm clearly never going to be an Olympic athlete because my VO2 <laughs> just won't allow me, but maybe I could become a weightlifter. Um, yeah, so, maybe you can start competing in bodybuilding competitions. Absolutely. Um, I do think, um, and so that's kind of one of the things, um, and I try not to get discouraged, and I still do all the things, you know, whether it is um, uh, pushing myself with a hip program or running, uh, but I these days I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm sanguine with the fact that my VO2 max score is never going to be wildly impressive. 
Mm. And what about, so do you still see like a reduction in your resting pulse or do you just find that no matter how much aerobic activity you're doing, that tends to stay, are you sort of just trying to maintain a level? I'm trying to maintain, I'm 65, so maintenance is good. Um, my resting pulse is normally about 58, 60, so it's kind of okay. Uh, it's never going to get down into the 30s, but it's okay. And so, uh, yeah, at my age, I think it's mainly about maintenance. It's about trying to preserve particularly my muscles, but my aerobic fitness is obviously a kind of big thing. Um, and the other thing is obviously, because I discovered back then, this was 10 years ago, uh, that I had type 2 diabetes. That was sort of the um, result of blood test. Jamie hinted at it. He said, your insulin sensitivity has improved, but it was from a pretty low base. And anyway, I discovered I had type 2 diabetes. And then rather than go on medication, which is what my doctor recommended, I went off to find out if there was a way of curing myself. And that's what led to uh, the 5-2 diet. Um, so I actually made off another film for Horizon Science series. And this was called Eat Fast, Live Longer. And that was when I discovered the benefits of intermittent fasting. And when I came back during the course of the edit, so we shot everything. And then during the course of the edit, I actually went on the 5-2 diet. So at the end of the edit, we would know whether I had succeeded or failed uh, in reversing my diabetes. And indeed, um, I managed to lose about 10 kilos in eight weeks. And at the end of that time, my blood sugars were right back to normal, which is where they have stayed ever since. So Amazing. that was striking. But at the time, diabetes mm. was regarded as an incurable disease. Uh, the science has moved on since then. But um, what I was did was deemed impossible at the time, or at least remarkably unlikely. And so uh, that's kind of what sent me off on this sort of mission to find out more about health and indeed to question a lot of the stuff that I've been taught, because it turns out a lot of it's nonsense. Yeah, so glad you did, because it's led to so many interesting books and documentaries. Um, can you explain like with insulin sensitivity, because I think everyone now, you know, is very familiar with like controlling blood glucose. Certainly yep. my audience listening to this will be and they often are wearing continuous blood glucose monitors to measure it and to see. And actually, people are now sort of obsessing with keeping that blood glucose within a very tight range. Yep. But then we also have insulin sensitivity and devices like Lumen, for example, that people know about that show you, are you burning carbs or fats? What's actually going into the cells, yep. um, which is also a useful kind of understanding that people can have. If you have good insulin sensitivity, is it risky to be spiking your blood glucose. For example, you've been for a workout, you now come back and you load up with some carbohydrates. How important do you think it is that we actually control that range? Um, obviously, if we're constantly spiking, it will be reducing, right? We'll be developing insulin resistance over the long term. Yeah. But I think it's just helpful for people to really understand the difference. Sure. So the thing about insulin, which I'm sure you and your listeners probably already know, is essentially it um, it's it's a response to an increase in your blood sugar levels. So your, you know, pancreas releases insulin that brings your blood sugars down. And what your insulin does is primarily is it stops fat burning. It takes that sugar and it stuffs it into cells. That's its main role. Um, other things like stress, cortisol and things like that, that will also lead to a spike in insulin. So what you want to be doing is producing as little insulin as possible, um, in, but enough to actually do its role. And that's what insulin sensitivity is all about. Insulin resistance, which is the bad thing, is essentially your body, because it's been constantly exposed to big blood sugar spikes, has to keep on pumping out more and more insulin until the point where you develop type 2 diabetes and your pancreas packs up. That's kind of the problem. So in terms of 
spikes. Ideally, as you say, you don't want to get lots of spikes. But to be honest, it doesn't matter that much. And keeping your body is very, very good at regulating your blood sugar levels. Um, the main thing is, as they go up, do they come down pretty fast? Um, and that's the, the best measure, because that's a sign that your body is responding to the blood sugar spike because you've had a big carby meal or a big carby load after a workout. And your body has gone, right, got to deal with this, bring it down. And that is exactly what your body is supposed to do. And if it's doing that efficiently and well, then you have nothing much to worry about. Uh, concern comes, obviously, when it's not doing that, when your blood sugars stay high, uh, when you have a meal and you have a persistently high level. Uh, those I love those blood glucose meters. I also wear them occasionally. Um, I use them mainly uh, for interesting which foods I respond to, which I don't. Mm. And my wife, Claire, who's very different physiologically to me in the sense that, you know, she can eat pretty much what she wants. Uh, she'd been slim all her life. I tend to fat because that's kind of how my father was. And um, and she responds really quite differently to the same foods, whether it is rice, uh, bananas, whatever. I, I respond quite aggressively. <laughs> to sugary foods doesn't stop me eating them but it's not a good thing uh but um if you actually want to kind of measure your overall blood sugar control you're better off um, doing something called hba1c test which is a kind of measure of um how your blood sugar control has been over the last few weeks or months um, mm. and that is a kind of more reliable measure but i wouldn't worry too much about a few spikes particularly if they come down fast the only thing I'd say is eating late at night is probably a pretty bad thing. Because when I did a, an experiment where I did that, I had exactly the same meal for breakfast. And then the evening, it was a sort of big fry up. And in the morning, blood sugars, blood fat shot up, shot down. Uh, in the evening, they shot up and stayed up. Because oh, interesting. my body was not, um, you know, basically everything had closed down for the night. You know, it's like going to a restaurant mm. and then give me a meal. And the waiter's saying, eh, not sure about that. And then they get grumpy and the whole process is very slow. So yeah, no, eating late at night is stupendously bad for you. Um, there's lots and lots of research which points out that. So I don't know why the Spanish and Italians do it, but yeah, they do it. Yeah, and seem to be okay. So when you had that meal, because I'm like you, I have like a family history of type 2 diabetes and I have PCOS. So for me, it's constantly like, yeah. it takes work, right, to manage blood sugar. Um, when you had that late meal, was it very, very close to bedtime? Was it late in the evening or? Yeah, so, so I did one at 10 in the morning and then the other was 10 in the evening. So I'd fasted okay, the sure. night before and then it was 10 in the evening. So it was pretty late, but not crazily late. And mm. um, the problem is that your whole circadian rhythm, your body clock, everything is basically going, oh, time to close down for the night, time to shut down. Uh, and it's not really ready to digest loads of food. Plus, you're not going to do anything in the way of activity after you've done it. So at least in the morning, you eat it, you go out for a walk, you go out for a run, you just kind of pootle around the house, you do something. Whereas if you have it late at night, you're going to be going to bed in about an hour's time. And then you're just going to be lying there. And that big load of food which is sticking in your gut is probably not going to help your sleep. And it's going to hang around and the fat is going to hang around and sugar is going to hang around. So, yeah, um, it's pretty clear. This is one bit of advice is um, and this is time restricted eating, which I'm kind of really interested in. And I wrote a section again in the uh, book, the Just One Thing book on uh, time restricted eating. And um, the advice there from Professor Sachin Panda, who's kind of the guru of it. He's kind of the scientist who's been behind it at Salk Institute since the early days. Um, he basically says, try not to eat or drink anything with calories within three hours of going to bed. That's mm. his sort of tip. 
Yeah, I've read that. And also he he definitely finds eating earlier in the day better, right? So if you're going to do that time restricted eating, try and bring your meals earlier. Because I think a lot of people are doing that. They're restricting their eating and doing things like the 16, 8, or some people doing one meal a day. And then they're having it all in the evening and just yeah. fasting all day because they find, you know, concentration benefits and things like that. But it's not so good uh, it's for health. Panda, basically, he had breakfast at about eight and then he has an evening meal at six. Well, he tries to finish his evening meal with his family by six. So that gives him a 10, 14, 10, which he thinks is probably optimal. Uh, but for most of us, there are obviously, it's difficult because you have a social life, you have things going on. So I kind of aim for more 12, 12 and try to stop and don't always succeed uh, by 8 p.m. and then not eat again until 8 a.m., maybe 9 a.m. the next morning. But it's all of these things are about sort of making it work in your life as much as anything else because mm. otherwise you can go bonkers yeah you can you can try and then you've got the stress right which is increasing your blood glucose anyway yeah um yeah so with the stress management because you made an important point there that i think people often overlook the stress in the sleep and how much that impacts metabolism do you look at things like heart rate variability as a metric for seeing how people are managing their nervous system and how it's reacting um, you can if you're doing it, you know, on a sort of proper scientific basis. Uh, broadly, um, I we rely because the online program is essentially a digital program. Um, so we rely on questionnaires and things like that as to how you're sort of coping. And they seem to be reasonably accurate as a measure of people are quite good at self-reporting on stress. And mm. um, there is sort of physiological stress and psychological stress. And although they are not the same thing, they do kind of cross over. You can also get those sort of, you know, um, cortisol salivary things where you can measure them. Um, and uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I am more interested in, um, uh, I guess, in um, how I feel than what a blood or a urine or an otherwise test tells me i like tests i can do at home which is the problem as well i haven't found mm. a good uh variability because again as you say heart rate variability is kind of that sort of there but not really there it's not mm. terribly reliable as a source of anything and yeah, that's because i use the whoop strap oh, i like look at the whoop and the aura at night and see absolutely. what it is and i've and noticed they, a difference with eating as you say like if i've eaten earlier my hrv is going to be a lot better overnight than if i ate late yeah, I'm sort of sceptical about a lot of the data you get out of those um, sort of Fitbit type machines. Um, I mean, for one thing is they're incredibly inaccurate at measuring the amount of calorie burn because, uh, you know, I've tested them against um, a proper, you know, with a scientist from uh, University of Bath where we actually measured, you know, properly how much calories I was burning compared to what the machine said. And it was out by about 80 percent. So that wasn't eighty percent. Absolutely. God. In which direction? Oh, told me I was burning vastly more than I really. Yeah, was. that's what I've noticed. Aura seems to think I burn way more calories than I believe. Absolutely. I burn. Mm. And quite often it's because what they're doing is they're giving you the gross calorie burn as opposed to the net. So what you want to know is how many more calories am I burning compared to if I was just sitting in a chair having a gin and tonic, um, and that's not what they give you. What they give you broadly is the uh, is how many calories you may have burned. And even so, their figures, I think, are wildly inaccurate, at least based on um, some of these things. And I also looked to another type of watch, which is supposed to measure my blood pressure, and I tested it against a blood pressure monitor. It was just crazily out. I mean, wildly, wildly inaccurate. So uh, where I have compared these devices with anything which is a gold standard, uh, they have been utterly underwhelming and the same is true for the sleeping 
uh, metrics. There, they're not terrible, but they're not good either. Uh, again, I've paired it, um, been in a sleep lab where I'm wearing a device, but I'm also wearing an EG, you know, a mm. scalp device which measures how much sleep I'm having. Uh, and um, there's very little concordance between what the wrist thing tells me happened at night and what the machine that measures my brain waves says has actually happened. So again, it's, it's just not that great. And I guess it's not surprising because it's not a direct measure, it's an indirect measure. And so it, it exaggerates the amount of sleep you're getting, for example, uh, because you know, you're still, it assumes that you're sleeping, whereas you could just be lying there fretting. So um, I am quite skeptical about those things. Mm, interesting, interesting. So I remember speaking to Dr. Matthew Walker in London, who wrote yeah. Why We Sleep, and he was wearing the aura ring. And he said, this was a couple of, this was pre-lockdown, and he thought that the, it was about 60% accurate yeah. compared to a lab at that point. But at I least think. I suppose you can take the view that you're measuring it against yourself. You're kind of self-quantifying night on night. So um, 60, it depends on whether you think 60% is good or bad. I mean, I yeah. think that's terrible. I think that's <laughs> it's not the best. I, I, I still like my data good. though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of I, don't think it's, I don't think they've got any better. They might've got a bit better since then. I last looked at them a couple of years ago. And as Matthew Walker said, they were about 60% and always one of the best, you know, um, mm. so uh, yeah and uh, there's also a slight tendency for people to obsess about it so there is a, a condition known as orthosomnia where people become obsessed by the data from their wrist devices whatever and so, they, so rather than going actually I slept fine last night you know I feel fine I don't feel sleepy they look at it and go, oh my god I didn't get a, I did not get enough deep sleep <laughs> I did not get enough REM sleep I'm sure where's my crown <laughs> and um, sometimes you just gotta go how do I feel um, and if I feel fine, then you've probably got enough sleep. You're probably all right. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of research recently on how you can live to 101. This is very exciting because I think what, what seems to be the case at the moment is we've got very good at keeping people alive, uh, kind of almost unfortunately good, right, at keeping people alive in 15 years of ill health potentially, but not necessarily that good at extending healthy life expectancy um what have you found on your travels across the world uh is okay. going to keep us in really good health to to over 100 uh, okay so um that was obviously a catchy title and the reality is what we want to do is we want to i don't want to live one and um, what i want to do is um, live a terribly healthy and then get run over by a bus or something or uh you know die windsurfing at the age of 80 or something like that so yeah. um what I was looking there is uh, primarily at healthy aging and what are the markers of healthy aging in different populations and individuals, and also looking at things like um, hearing, muscle mass and things like that, and at some of the high tech stuff. So, for example, we went to the Faroe Islands, um, uh, which are, you know, Danish, but somewhere way north of here. They're halfway between Denmark and Iceland. And um, they are mad keen on football in the, Dan in, uh, the Faroe Islands. Um, so one of the things we looked at is a project they did there, where they got a group of women who were in their 40s and early 50s and who already had signs of quite advanced osteoporosis, weakening of the bones. And they were randomly allocated, this was nine years ago, to either swimming or playing five-a-side football. And then they kind of just let them get on with it. And within a short while, the swimmers had kind of given up. But the five-a-side footballers went on because they just enjoyed it. It was sociable, you know. They loved it. And 10 years later, when they did DEXA scans on them, look at bone density, 
they now have the bone density of 30-year-old. These were people you would naturally assume uh, because they had quite advanced osteoporosis, it would have got a lot worse over those 10 years. Mm. But instead, it's absolutely reversed and they have fantastic uh, bone density now. And that's all because kind of football is a terrific sport for bones because you get all the jiggling, the jumping. As you know, bone strength is all about impact. Bang, bang. Mm. That's why running is good for it. Uh, but also football seems to be spectacularly good for it because you kind of constantly and because it's fun. And that's the other key to any form of exercise. You've got to keep doing it. And the only way you're going to keep doing it is if you enjoy it or you're incredibly motivated. So I was um, I thought I was rather good. I also had my own uh, myself scanned while I was there just a little bit. And I was pleased to see I have my spine has, have the spine of a 30 year old because I do a lot of press ups. So uh, press-ups are good for the biceps, but spectacularly good for the spine. Are they? How uh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know they were really good for the spine. Absolutely. And so uh, I have a family history of osteoporosis. Uh, my mother had it. You know, my grandmother had it. My aunts had it, you know, mainly in the female line, uh, but not something I, and they've become more and more bent as I get older and the vertebrae crack. So something I'm very keen to avoid. So, yeah, I was very pleased with that. But that was an example of quite a simple intervention. Uh, leading to very profound change, you know, when it comes to bones. And we looked at that in various things. And we also looked at... Um, it's a huge uh, change. I mean, the bones of a 30-year-old, that's massive. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Uh, it was terrific. Um, yeah. And uh, the other thing we looked at is obviously a lot of uh, things around hearing eyesight. Uh, we went to Okinawa, which is famous for all Amazing. the old people there. And that was really, really interesting because... Um, they have uh, the highest percentage of centenarians and non-agarians in the world. So the highest number of people who are currently of the population as percentage uh, who are in their 90s and 100s. But their average life expectancy is no better than ours. And that's because the young are dying much faster. There is just a particular group of people who seem to be living uh, a healthy old age. And that actually seems to be to do with the fact that after the Second World War, uh, they were severely calorie restricted. They basically had to live on the local food, which was mainly kind of veg uh, with quite a lot of sweet potato because that's kind of grows there and white rice really doesn't. And with very limited amounts of meat. So they are uh, striking evidence of the benefits of uh, calorie restriction, particularly uh, in sort of young to middle age because now they eat a load of pork and things like that. Indeed, when I was in Okinawa, one of the favorite dishes, everything seemed to come with Spam uh, because they've been colonized by the Americans. So the kids are all kind of dying of Western diseases. Their life expectancy is lower than most Japanese now, but there is this group of people who stand out and um, it's really interesting. I also went to- um, And it's down, you think, to the calorie restriction that they had. How interesting. And to some degree to the diet, um, but I think it's almost wholly down to the calorie restriction uh, that they were forced to have when they were in their 20s and 30s and maybe in their 40s as well. And when they got the opportunity, they went back to, you know, eating. But, it, but they also have other sort of good habits like uh, the idea of you only eat 80% of your plate. You know, you don't eat until you're mm. absolutely full. And they also have a rather lovely uh, thing where they all kind of they have small groups where they gather. To support each other so i we filmed with a um, heart surgeon who's still operating at the age of 92 and his wife recently died and so they formed one of these mutual support groups and every saturday eight of them gather together to sing karaoke that's what he loves doing and so there's a real sense of sort of bringing together and a group support and i think 
there is loads and loads of research which shows that loneliness kills you. Um, and that the one of the great predictors again of healthy life expectancy is the number of close friends you have. Uh, there was um, something called the Harvard Health Study, which is the longest running study ever. Uh, and which began in the, I think, late, early 1930s. And they got a bunch of people who were then in about 18 uh, from Harvard University and also from the wrong side of the track. JFK was one of them. And then they just followed them throughout the course of their life. And they're all now dead. And they found the single greatest predictor of who would lead a long and healthy life was the number of close friends they had. Interesting. So don't shut yourself away and work too hard then. No, exactly. Make sure yeah, you make have sure, a social Make sure life. you nourish your friends and your relationships. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, your book as well, Just One Thing, fantastic book on how to develop micro habits, right? So people can lease. I, I love everything about what you do and you teach. It really just empowers people to take tiny steps that make big changes and compound over time. I know there's lots of them in there, but can you talk us through, give us three key ways that people can do one small thing that will improve their health? Absolutely. So I, mean, I think, and I've talked about the squat and the press up, um, that's kind of what I and my wife Claire do first thing. You have to, ideally, the thing should be quite short, at least initially, um, so that you're going to do it and it should be tied to something else you're already doing. So the that becomes a trigger. So you need these trigger, these attachments to turn something into a habit. So in this case, we roll out of bed and we get out, we do a sort of short program of squats and press ups and, you know, the planks and things like that. There's a great sort of uh, app you can download called the seven minute workout, which kind of takes you through all this stuff. Yeah, and obviously, if you want to go on beyond that, terrific. You can go down the gym, you can pump iron. But this I would regard as an absolute minimum that you do this and it takes two or three minutes. Um, and then typically I'll go and have a cold shower, start off with a warm shower, wash myself, uh, get in the cold shower, turn the old cold at least and scream a bit, but about 40 seconds is enough. Again, a lot of research showing benefits of cold water swimming, but I'm never gonna do that. Uh, and there have been studies, there was a study from Holland, which I wrote about in the Just One Thing book, uh, where they got people either to do 40 second cold showers or just stick to warm showers and there were about 5,000 of them. And they found those who had the cold showers uh, in the subsequent winter, they were much less likely to develop um, colds, flu, or take time off sick. So we know again, cold water immersion. Good for the immune system. Good for the immune system. And indeed good for mood. Uh, no studies on showers per se, but there's a study published very, very recently uh, where they randomly allocated people to either kind of walking along a beach or swimming in the sea in a cold water program. And those who swam in the sea, these were all people who had a moderate to severe depression. And the ones who went swimming were the ones who got the most benefit. And there were indeed changes in the blood you could see. So these are kind of a, a couple of things I do. Uh, also singing, singing is good for you. Dancing, are you a dancer? I like dancing and Absolutely. singing. My children don't like me singing. Absolutely, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's going to be good. But hey. um, I did a uh, program a while back for a series I made called uh, trust me, I'm a doctor. And as part of that, uh, we got a group of people uh, to either sing in a choir or cycle uh, for 30 minutes a day in a group or read instructions from a washing machine. That was kind of the control group. And what we were doing is we were measuring levels of something called the endocannabinoids. These are cannabis-like substances that your body naturally produces. And uh, we found that the singers got the biggest boost in the endocannabinoids. So they felt kind of happiest 
and up for it. And uh, they had the most buzz. So uh, that was kind of encouraging. And as I said, the good news, you don't have to be good. You just have to have tolerance. You just have to do it. <laughs> you just have to do it. Have tolerant family, family members. So um, I do it in shower. Helps me. Um, oh, there again, you go. Some Next time, you double whammy. Cold shower double and whammy. singing that, at the same time. Singing, exactly. Yeah. And my wife promptly leaves the bathroom at that point. Yeah. <laughs> What's the uh, magic of 40 seconds then? And do you need to go full immersion? Have you got to get your head under? I know there's like some evidence, isn't there, around the neck? I mean, I actually love... Uh, splashing my face with cold water mm. feels really nice as well um, but if you're in the shower do you need to be kind of going for like, like under the arms of the limbs because I think a lot of people are going to cower right and just go like yeah. this you go, no I've done my 40 seconds it's up absolutely um so the reason for 40 seconds that seems to be the minimal amount of time uh when they did this duck study they did 20 seconds 40 seconds and two minutes people are asked to do and uh 40 seconds in the two minutes uh, benefits the 20 seconds not uh, but there was no difference between the tw uh, 40 seconds and two minutes so if you like two minutes great but 40 seconds seems to be enough, enough. yeah the rule is basically you need to stay in there long enough uh, for you stop hyper hyperventilating so okay. when you go first go in you're going to go <laughs> you know <coughs> and probably start screaming um, but when you get your breath under control that's kind of probably when you come out you can come out. And is that for immunity or is that long enough as well for like producing more brown fat and improving metabolic rate and mitochondria and things? Uh, probably simply for immunity, I suspect. Okay. And I haven't seen enough studies, uh, but I know they're looking at um, there was a study done uh, where simply putting your hand into cold water was enough to induce uh, this was Nottingham University an increase uh, in brown fat. Indeed, um, at this time of year, I still haven't turned our thermometers on at home, um, you know, uh, gas on. I've got uh, temperature gauges around the house so I can show Claire. She's agreed we can go down to 16 degrees. Uh, and uh, there was a study where they got people living in a house and the house, they adjusted the temperature of the house between 27 degrees and about 17 degrees. And when they were down 17 degrees, they produced about 40% more brown fat uh, than they did when it was at around 21 degrees. So it is a powerful way of inducing brown fat, but I suspect 40 seconds in culture isn't going to do it. Make the most of the cold winter. <laughs> yeah, go outside, right? And, yeah. and get or cold. Or at least um, or keep the heating off in your house if you can bear it, because um, that seems to be, it, it takes a bit of a while for brown fat to uh, induction to begin. Uh, it's clearly a sort of, you know, a retained um, ability that we have from back in the day when um, our ancestors were shivering around at 12 degrees. Mm. Any other t uh, tips for immunity? Well, I think um, one of the things you absolutely ought to be doing is eating um, things like oily fish. We know that omega-3, um, that's again one of the uh, tips in the book. Uh, try and eat that. Um, I aim uh, to eat uh, oily fish two or three, maybe four times a week. Um, we know it's very good for the heart. We also know it's very good for the brain. And it is, you know, things like salmon, and mackerel and anchovies are also pretty rich in vitamin D. And all of these are important elements for your immune system. Uh, mm -hmm. Omega-3, absolutely vitamin D, yes. The only one anyone knows about is vitamin C. And vitamin C, frankly, um, I, I did an experiment where we tested a whole, we tested a bunch of people to see what their vitamin levels were. And um, these were people who were overweight or obese. And the only thing they were super abundant in was vitamin C. It was a... Oh, yeah. Most of the other things were either marginal or below the line. 
and particularly if you were Asian Afro-Caribbean, then vitamin D, even in midsummer, was below the line. But the only thing they were super abundant in was vitamin C because people kind of, you know, go, oh, vitamin C. Yeah, uh, but actually, it's probably, it is a very important uh, vitamin for your immune system, but uh, it's remarkably unlikely you will be deficient in it, whereas some of the other things you may well be. Mm, yeah genetics play a part don't they with vitamin d yeah very much so amazing you have shared so many tips and there's a whole lot more in your book just one thing it's a fantastic book um thank you so much for coming on the show where can people find you more about you what you're doing there's a new a new series coming out is there on longevity absolutely how to live to 101 not sure of the um, date we haven't quite finished it yet so if they kind of want to follow me they can find me under dr michael mosley on twitter uh, and they can also find me on Instagram. I think I'm uh, Michael Mosley official because there are dozens of fake Michael Mosleys on there. Um, so, and uh, you can also uh, find me via my wife, Dr. Claire Bailey, um, who's on uh, Instagram, and she also posts lots of recipes. She does all the recipes for our books. And indeed, oh, she's amazing. carried out a lot of original research with Oxford University, looking at the benefits of rapid weight loss. So uh, she, um, yeah. She has a lot of um, great content if you're interested in science and you're interested in food. That's, and that's Dr. Claire Bailey. Yeah, it's spelled C-A-L-A-R-E, Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y. Amazing. Instagram. And there's a fantastic app that you have as well with all the diet plans as well, right, to make it super Absolutely. easy for people. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.